We're in a new series that we're calling Family Matters, and if you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, you know that as we've started, we've, we've started with some issues relating to men. And certainly men are a big part of the family, and you may be surrounded in your family by great men or by not-so-great men, or as you look back in your life, you may have had wonderful examples of what biblical manhood is all about. You may have had very poor examples. You may be today a great husband or not-so-great husband, a great dad, a not-so-great dad, a great man, a not-so-great man. You may be a young man, an older man, or whomever, but all of us are affected by the men that are in our lives. And so I believe it's appropriate, as we have started this series, to look at the role and the life of men in general, because I believe that as the man goes, so goes the family. And if the man does go, then the family can easily go with it. And so I I wanted to start with this. I believe it's important, and we'll cover lots of other areas. So ladies, if you're feeling in any way left out, I hope that's not the case. I hope you can see the truth of how this can be reinforced with the men in your lives and how you can encourage them and pray for them and help them to be pointed back to God's truth about what being a man is all about. As we well know, men get all kinds of mixed messages, as do women, but men get all kinds of mixed messages on what it truly means to be a man. And so I hope, ladies, even as you listen to sermons that are directed more toward men and their application, that you understand this is vital for you to pray for and to support and to help the men in your life know the truth of this and be able to be pointed in that direction. And if you're a young woman, and, and let's just say that you're, uh, you're, you're not married yet, Or maybe you're a single lady here and you say, you know, maybe I'm not so young anymore, but I'd like to be married one day. And and maybe God will bring that kind of man in your life. I hope that you'll pray for this kind of man. As we've looked so far at faithful men and courageous men, we'll look today at a different set of that as well. Uh, Our goal has been over these last three weeks, anyway, to change the scoreboard for men. The scoreboard, according to the world, tells us that men uh, have to look a certain way, be in a certain shape, achieve a certain thing, make a certain amount of money, have certain stuff, and then you can be considered successful. And whether we like it or not, that's the scoreboard for our world. We're probably not going to change that. Now, that may be discouraging to you. We're probably not going to change the fact that, by and large, what men do for a living and how much money they make is equated with how successful they are. Now, guys, I I, I wish that could change, but it's probably not going to. And you know as well as I do that if you look at the scoreboard the world puts up for you, you're not going to be able to live up to it. I've told you that the last two weeks. I start with all the discouraging stuff, and hopefully we end on a high note. But you know you can't live up to that. You can't be good-looking enough or talented enough or make enough money or have enough stuff because somebody else always is better than you. So if you're going to live up to that, you're going to be on a never-ending quest that will drive you crazy and will leave you very empty. I've also looked at the fact that God Himself has a scoreboard, which is absolute sinless perfection. Now, I would ask for a show of hands this morning on how many of you are absolutely sinless and totally perfect, but then we'd fall into the sin of pride, and so I don't want to do that because that would ruin your record. But none of us this morning can raise our hands and say that we are sinless and perfect. So according to God's scoreboard, we can't live up to that either. What great news I've given you the last three weeks. The world's scoreboard is going to overwhelm you. You can't live up to it. God's scoreboard is sinless perfection. You can't do that either. And the great news about God's scoreboard is because He knows you can't do that, He sent somebody to do it in your place. Jesus not only died and was resurrected for you, but you realize that before that He lived a sinless and perfect life. 
We sometimes forget that it's the life of Jesus as well that makes him viable and eligible to die for our sins as a sinless and perfect sacrifice. And so, guys, you can't live up to God's scoreboard. You can't be perfect. Some of you are trying. Some are wearing yourselves out to do everything and to be everything and to be perfect at it. And you get frustrated because you fail. God never expected you to be perfect. That's why He sent Jesus. And so it's through His perfection that now we receive the grace of God and can be made new. And so the new scoreboard that God gives us is based upon His grace, which says that after we've come to Jesus in faith, trusting Him alone for the salvation of our sins, now we've got a new scoreboard. Here's how God wants us to live now that we've come to faith in Christ. We've talked about so far that that new scoreboard includes being faithful as a man. And how every man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can be a faithful man. Imperfect, but faithful. Last week we looked at, at faithful men, uh, the faithful man leading then to the courageous man, the study of the life of David. And how every man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can be a courageous man and go after and fight for the kind of life that God wants you to have. And so we've seen how great men are faithful men. Great men are courageous men. But the question then remains, and maybe you've wondered this, maybe you've buckled down over the last couple of weeks, guys, and you said, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be courageous. And yet you look at the last couple of weeks and you say, I haven't been faithful. I haven't been very courageous. I listen to those sermons, but man, I'll be honest with you, it seems like they went in one ear and right out the other. I just, I've failed. What do you do then? Okay, this new scoreboard, I'm not even doing well with that. What do you do then? Can you still be a great man even when you mess everything up? Can you still be a great man even when you sin? Can you still be a great man even when you do the things you swore you'd never do? Even when you've destroyed many of the people in your life? Even when you've let everyone down, including God and yourself? Even when your life's a mess? I realize in church we get dressed up and we don't like to talk about the fact that our lives are a mess, but let's be honest, at least one of you here, has a life that's a mess. And maybe it's by your own doing, and you're wondering, how in the world can I still be a great man? How can I be a great woman when I've done all this? When all this stuff is piled up against me? Our focus has been, as I said, on the life of David. Now, what I find interesting about David is that if you know his story, before we know anything about David, before he becomes king, and even before he takes on Goliath and whips him, David is called, described in the Scripture, by God himself as a man after God's own heart. That means David is a great man. He's a godly man. He's somebody who's pursuing God and wants to be like him. Over in Hebrews, we learn that after everything has been known about David, he is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. Now, you would think that before we know anything and after we know everything, that David must have been absolutely perfect. There must have been nothing that he ever did that was wrong. But just as famous as the story of David and Goliath... That's how infamous the story is of David and Bathsheba. And if you know that story, then you know that David was not perfect. That he made choices that certainly many of us would swear we'd never do. That David, as a godly man, would never, ever, ever want to do those things. But what we learn is that David's story is not a fairy tale. It includes this episode that he would have rather avoided... 
And he does those things that we would think a man of God would never do. He steals another man's wife and he has her husband murdered. Now that sounds like something you saw in Dateline, NBC last week or whatever it is. It sounds like a modern day thing. We realize people have not changed. When you read the Bible, you have to understand that they're just the same as we are. They just lived in a different time with maybe a little different expression of how life was lived. But they are exactly the same. David sees this woman and wants her. So he steals her from her husband while he's away and then has her husband murdered. How is that someone that God would say is after my own heart? An adulterer and a murderer. It's what happens after that, I really believe. What we'll see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and and furthermore in Psalm chapter 51, we'll see what David does that makes him and continues to build him to be this man after God's own heart, even when he's done things that some of us would say there's no way he can recover from that. So here's more for your new scoreboard this week. What we learned from David, we've studied the life of David and seen him being faithful. We've seen him being courageous, and now what we'll see is that great men are repentant men. Great men are repentant men. Now, I'll be honest with you, the word repentance is a word that's fallen out of favor in our society. We don't like it. We don't understand it. We don't know what it means. It sounds like a really churchy, Bible-type word. But I really believe that if you are going to be a great man, if the men in your life need you to reinforce anything with them to help them. It's faithfulness, it's courage, and it's repentance that we see in the life of David. We don't grow up seeing good examples of repentance. We really don't, not in today's world. We see lots of avoiding blame. We see dodging the consequences. We see covering things up. We we see things like that. But there's something wrong, I really believe, with all of that. We know people mess up. We know we mess up, and we do it big time. And yet so few of us take the time to stop and begin to work through the process of making it right. Guys, I I really believe that today's topic is one that can change your life. I believe it can change your life, obviously, eternally, because the Scripture says that without repentance, without turning from our sin, we cannot receive the grace of God and forgiveness for our sin. We cannot do it. And so those who are unwilling to repent and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ alone stand condemned in their sin and will pay for that for all eternity in a place called hell, where the Bible says the torture never ends. Unrepentance is a major problem for all eternity. And so today, this can change your life if you recognize that I must repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of my sin. And I think also, this topic today can change your life each and every day. Because I believe that repentance can be the key to restoring your marriage, restoring your life with your children, restoring your life together as a family, your relationship with co-workers, your relationships with friends, relationships between church members, relationships with the community, and so on. It is impossible to restore, to repair, or to rebuild what has been destroyed in your life apart from repentance. It cannot happen. I believe today is a topic that unfortunately also has the potential to go in one ear and out the other. Satan uh, wants to put you to sleep this morning. Let's be honest with you. He'll literally put you to sleep. I mean, he wants you just to kind of not pay attention and think about other things and all of that. Satan really wants you to be distracted this morning, 
to have you believe that this sermon maybe is just for somebody else. And so today, it, it has the potential to go in one ear and out the other. And I really believe that as we move forward, today's topic of repentance really needs faithfulness and courage to make it happen. So if you've got your Bible, some of you have already turned there. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we were able this morning to get the words of the songs on the screen. I'm still working on the scripture. We've got a little hiccup with that, and I'll have those for you next week. So I hope that uh, you are are ready to turn to the Bible or pull it up on your phone or tablet or whatever you've got this morning to get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've been talking about how do you build this game plan. There's the new scoreboard. How do you build a game plan to be successful, to be God's kind of man, to be a great man? And, and the statement that I'll give you that you'll see on the back of your bulletin, I'm just going to give you in parts this morning. And it all fits together. I want you to remember it, but I'm going to give it to you in parts. So the first part of it is when great men sin. When great men sin. As I told you, David made a couple of choices in 2 Samuel chapter 11 to steal another man's wife and to have her husband murdered. He did those sins intentionally. Now, you and I can relate to sins that we do intentionally. There are some things that we intend to do, we plan on doing, we figure out how to get away with it, and we do those things. Now, there are other sins that maybe we learn later on, oh, I didn't realize that was something I shouldn't have done. We all have those sins that we do. Sin will happen. You, you see, when great men sin, I just put in parentheses there, it will happen. Now, I don't know about you, fellas, but I don't really like this. I really wish sin would just go away. I really wish that at the time that I gave my life to Jesus, that he took away my sin nature completely and, and everything would be fine. But in order to do that, Jesus would have had to kill me at the point of conversion and take me to heaven. Because until I get to heaven, my sin nature will still reside inside of me, though it has been conquered by my new nature in Christ Jesus. You know as well as I do, like Paul talked about in Romans, that there is this internal battle that goes on, and sometimes you don't do the things you want to do, and sometimes you do the things you don't want to do. That's truth. There is this raging battle within every single one of us between our spirit nature given to us by God's Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion, and that old sinful nature that just refuses to go away. Satan doesn't give up his ground very easily. You've probably recognized that. And so, sin will happen, even to great men. Now, this does not minimize the fact that you are responsible for your sin. Oh, well, sin just happens. Things like that happen. That's not what I'm talking about. But I do want you to be realistic about the fact that none of us will achieve perfection until we are in the presence of Jesus himself in heaven. That's the only chance for perfection. Until then, we are simply daily walking with him, allowing him to, to what the Bible would talk about as the process of cleaning us up, sanctification, making us more like him. And so sin will happen. It may be big. And everybody knows it. And it was just awful. Just like David's sin. I mean, this, was, this is big sin. He committed adultery and murder within about 48 hours. I mean, he just, you know, there he goes. Your sin may be big like that. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, that's obvious that it's sin. Your sin may be small. You may think, well, is it really that big a deal? Your sin may be hidden. Nobody else knows about it. Your sin may be way out in the open, and everybody knows which sins are your sins. Maybe 
a joke of sorts. It may be of little consequence. You know, it kind of affected me and this other person. It's really just between us. And that doesn't minimize. You just say, it didn't destroy the entire universe because I did that. Or your sin may be life-altering. And you realize, you know what, I look back on that and I see how different my life is because I made that choice. Your sin may be socially acceptable. You realize that there are sins that are socially acceptable? That our society says, eh, you know, not a big deal. Now, more and more about anything that is sin is becoming socially acceptable. There are very few things in today's world that are now still frowned upon by society. Uh, really, we have an anything-goes kind of world, but there are some things that are just widely socially acceptable. And other things that folks would still kind of look at you and say, eh, you can't do that. So your sin may be one of those. Now, we all will sin, and even though it's not acceptable, it just simply points us to our ongoing need for Jesus Christ. You don't need Jesus only for conversion. Do you realize that? Now, you need only Jesus for conversion, but you don't need Jesus only for conversion. You need Him for conversion and life thereafter. You need Jesus each and every single day. For some here this morning, and maybe, fellas, it's for you. Ladies, it's for you. I don't know. But you look back on a decision that you made, and you gave your life to Jesus Christ. And from that point on, you've really just kind of been living as a good moral person. Though you do believe in Christ alone for salvation, He's not a part of your daily life. And maybe you haven't done anything you say is like what David did, but you know, I'm really, I'm just not living daily with the Lord. Our ongoing sin reminds us of our ongoing need for Jesus Christ and the need for us to, to apply the truth of the gospel into everyday life. You can't be good enough, even after salvation, to somehow have God be okay with you. You need Jesus every single day. So we have David, this great man who sinned. And he did it on purpose. He did it because he wanted to. He figured out a plan to do it. But the story doesn't end there because God was not going to leave him alone. It's interesting that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which, look back real quick at, at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. Uh, when the time of mourning had ended, uh, this is talking about for the death of the man that David had murdered. David had her, this man's wife, Bathsheba, brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Now, you might think, and they live happily ever after. I love this next part. However, the Lord, that's God Almighty Himself, considered what David had done to be evil. God doesn't miss anything. Now, I don't mean to scare you with that, but if it draws your attention to the fact that God doesn't miss anything then be aware that God doesn't miss anything. So, look at verse, 12, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan's a prophet. And typically, each king in, in Israel had a prophet that sort of spoke God's word to them and helped give spiritual direction to, to the nation. And what's going to happen is that Nathan will begin to point out David's sin. Now, what happens after David sins? At this point, maybe he's thinking, I, I got away with it. Maybe you've been there. You do something and you think, okay, well, I guess there's going to be no consequence whatsoever. Whew, all right. Um, yeah, probably wasn't the best thing to do, but I'm just glad there's not going to be anything that happens. David here maybe begins to ignore the fact that he had committed these two incredible sins, and he's just going to move on with his life. I mean, nobody else really knew, and the people who did know 
were members of the king's court, and they could just simply be killed if they said anything, so they're not going to talk. You know that. So maybe he figures he's going to get away with it. After all, he had covered it up. I mean, he, he'd had Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, murdered, but it really looked like he just got killed in battle because that's what he did. He just put him on the front lines where the fiercest fighting was, and Uriah was struck down by the enemy. But as God does for those he loves so much, including you and me, he's about to get David's attention. It says, so the Lord sent Nathan to David. Look at the next few verses. When he, Nathan, arrived, he said to him, David, tells him a little story. This is great. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. So it's just a little pet. It's a little lamb or a little pet. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. I mean, this, this, this little lamb is, is his buddy. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guests. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, now David's a king, he can do whatever he wants to, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. David's fired up, you can see that. He recognizes that this rich man has committed a very grave sin against the poor man, stealing something and killing what was not his. Nathan, now this took some guts right here. At this point, if I'm the prophet, I'd say, uh, David, I need to pray for a few minutes. Really, God, do you really want me to tell him? Lord, he could kill me right here. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. Not you're the man. <laughs> David, you're the man. Well, I love you, man. That's not it. David, you are that man. You're that guy who killed that lamb. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. And David here has to come to the realization that what he did was not, well, I made a mistake and you know, I had, a, had an affair with this lady and, you know, and I sort of told the commander of the army to kind of put her husband up toward the front of the line. We'll just see what happens. No, God knew the intent of David's heart. And he says, you stole this woman and you had her husband killed. That's exactly what you did. You murdered him. Isn't it interesting how God defines what we do maybe a little different than we'd like to define it? David wouldn't just say, well, look, he just he died in battle. What can I do? Well, those Ammonites, boy, they're pretty powerful. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sorry. And lo and behold, here's his wife that I happen to like. Hey, that's, that's not how God saw it. Now, therefore, verse 10, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. And this, this happens later. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. 
You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. And God doesn't mess around with sin. Just make no mistake about that. I, I don't want to tell you anything but what the Bible says. I don't, I don't want to be melodramatic, but God does not mess around with sin. It is an offense to Him. It is absolutely intolerable to Him. And that's why someone had to die for it. And in every case, blood has to be shed to be, to, for forgiveness to be granted. God does not play with sin. And He sends Nathan to point out David's sin directly. You know, sometimes your sin will be pointed out very directly. Maybe it's through a sermon. And I, you know, occasionally I notice, you know, maybe you squirm a little bit. I know your back's just itchy. I get that. It's just, you know, got to stretch a little bit. Maybe sometimes during a sermon, God is speaking directly to you. And, and it's not me, but it's the Lord calling you out and saying, hey, that's what you're dealing with. That's your sin right there. Or maybe it's through a song or through some scripture you read or a word spoken directly to you. You know, your family has a way of telling you where you mess up. You ever notice that? If you're a married person, and guys, I'll just speak to you in particular, ladies, we'll, we'll let you sort of be the Nathan in this story. Doesn't, if you're a married man, doesn't your wife occasionally play Nathan for you? You knucklehead. Told you. What you did was wrong. Shouldn't have said that. Now listen, she's not nagging you. She's playing Nathan. I mean, this is biblical. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it's your wife, or maybe it's your kids, or maybe it's somebody in your family. They just point it out to you. Uh, hey, <laughs> that was wrong. Dad, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, Mom, I, I listen, I, I know you're upset, but that's not right. Sometimes it's pointed out directly. And other times, you know as well as I do, it's pointed out indirectly. Maybe you just observe something, you think, oh my goodness. What I did was wrong. I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize now that what I said, what I did, what I thought was a sin. Maybe it's having something done to you and you recognize, oh my goodness, that's what I do to people all the time. I realize now I'm sinning against that person. Or maybe the Holy Spirit over time just begins to work on you and, and open your eyes to the things that are sinful in your life. Maybe you see what your sin does to other people, and gradually, indirectly, you begin to recognize this is sin. You know, God has a way of, over time, opening our eyes to our sin and to its consequences. Now, let me give you a little side note. Ladies, I just was joking around about you being Nathan and this being biblical. Be very, very careful, all of us here, about playing Nathan in the lives of others. The interesting thing about this is not just that Nathan on his own went and said, I have realized the king is messed up, I need to correct him in this. What does it say? The Lord sent Nathan. There may be people in your life that you need to say to them, hey, I just I need to talk to you about this. But be very careful to make sure that God is sending you to talk with them, or else you may set yourself up to just simply be a noisemaker or a, a finger pointer. But once your sin has been pointed out, then you've got a choice to make. And this is the crux of the story for David. That's why I set all of this stuff up, because David has sinned. It will happen, even in the lives of great men. And now his sin has been called out. Now he recognizes it. And what will he do? What's next? So when great men sin, here's the first part of it. The first thing they do is they own it. When great men sin, they own it. Verse 13 of chapter 12 here, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. 
That's all he says. He doesn't go on to make excuses. He just simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now what I'd like for you to do is hold your place there in 2 Samuel 12 and flip with me to the right, about midway through the Bible, to Psalm chapter 51. Now this this is widely and traditionally held to be David's words after and and perhaps even during his this thought process of of when he when he is confronted with his sin by Nathan here's what he says be gracious to me god according to your faithful love according to your abundant compassion remember he's just said i have sinned against the lord according to your abundant compassion blot out my rebellion Sin is rebellion against God. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. He's talking about his sinful nature. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. I was born, he says, to be a sinner, and now it's evident in my life that I have sinned. He calls it out as rebellion and as sin and as evil. He didn't try to play it off. He didn't try to blame someone else or his circumstances. He didn't try to pretend that it didn't happen or sweep it under the rug. At this point, David says, I have sinned and I'm going to do something about it. I, I will own it. So the first thing when great men sin is to own it, to recognize their sin. Now this does not mean that you heap guilt and shame on yourself. There is a difference between recognizing your guilt and feeling shameful over and over. The recognition of your guilt is to recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, I stand condemned, covered in sin completely, and God is justifiable in punishing me to hell for all eternity. That is the recognition of guilt. Shame says, I'm no good, I'm awful, I'm rotten, God doesn't love me, there's no way on earth that I can ever get back to Him. That's shame and that's different. God wants you to recognize your guilt so that you can let Him deal with it with what He's already done through Jesus Christ on the cross, and that is to cancel the debt of your sin. That's what God wants you to do. But you have to recognize it first. You have to own it to say, yes, I am a born sinner, and yes, I have sinned. Satan, on the other hand, wants to paralyze you by shame. What he wants to do is to have you sin and then feel really bad about it. You ever been there? Well, I shouldn't have done that. God, I just feel awful. God, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night this week to make up for it. And I'm even going to think about going Wednesday. And Lord, I know that preacher, he's talked about reading the Proverbs from time to time. So God, at least twice a week, I'm going to read the Bible. And I'm going to pray. And Lord, I, I know that I messed up. I'm hoping that this will kind of help. I'm hoping that you'll see that I'm really trying here. You know that's the cycle that Satan wants you in? To sin, to feel really bad about it, and then try to do all kinds of things to make up for it. And then you realize that going to church three times a week and reading your Bible twice a week and trying to pray every day doesn't make up for it. 
And so you say, forget it, and you sin again, and you feel really bad, and then you try to make up for it. Do you see the cycle that Satan wants you caught in? He wants you caught in the cycle of shame. When God says, I have sent Jesus to set you free from all of that stuff, live in me and let me live through you, and that's what freedom is about. A recognition of guilt is not heaping on of shame. It's a recognition that apart from Jesus Christ, I have no chance. And so, Lord, I give everything to you. And as a result of that, Lord, an expression of my love for you may be that I attend church. It may be that I read my Bible every single day, but I'm not doing that in order to earn your favor. I'm doing that as an expression of love and obedience to you. Do you see the difference? I sure hope so. Because if not, all we're doing is doing those things to try to earn God's love when He's already proven it by sending Jesus to die for us. You can't earn God's love. You can come to church every single week. You may have a whole closet full of posters from Sunday school and, and, and you got gold stars every week because you attended and you memorized those verses. But if you're counting on that stuff to earn you favor with God, you're just going to be in a cycle that Satan loves, one of shame and one of further sin. So the point is just to own it, which means there's no dodging it. (laughs) I sinned. For some today, the greatest thing you can do, man or woman, young person or old person, the greatest thing you could do is to say, I have sinned. Maybe that's the greatest thing you could do, is to begin there. So no trying to ignore it or hoping it'll just work itself out. Great men don't ignore their sin. They don't try to dodge it. They don't try to weasel out of it. They own it and they begin to tackle the process of dealing with it. Because the more you dodge it, the more it's going to destroy you from the inside out. So when great men sin, it will happen. They own it so there's no dodging it and then they confess it. David said in Psalm in Second uh, Samuel chapter twelve, "I have sinned against the Lord." In Psalm fifty-one, he just goes straight to God, recognizing only God can forgive him. After the service here in just a moment, if you'd like, you can certainly come, and I'll be happy to pray with you. We'll have a couple of our deacons that are just kind of be hanging out down here, and if you'd like to pray with one of them, just talk to somebody. You say, "Look, I'm struggling with this." Then you you certainly can. But let me tell you this: I cannot forgive your sins. I cannot do it. A sinner cannot forgive the sins of another sinner. Make no mistake about it. I don't know what you were taught as a child. I don't know what your particular brand of religion or denomination has taught you as a child. But on the Word of God, I tell you that a sinner cannot forgive the sin of another sinner. It takes a sinless, perfect God to forgive the sin of sinners because only He has not sinned and only He is the one we've sinned against. You cannot come to me to be forgiven of sin. Now, I can pray for you and I can help you and maybe we can work together to say, I want to build something new in my life so those sins are no longer a temptation for me, but I cannot forgive you. Coming to church cannot forgive you. Reading your Bible cannot forgive you. Simply saying prayers to repeat words cannot forgive you. Only Jesus Christ who died a death that He did not deserve to die. A sinless sinless and perfect death. Only a sinless, perfect God can forgive the sin of sinners. Make no mistake about it. You must go directly to God Himself for forgiveness. You can come to me and say, I need forgiveness of my sin. You know what I'm going to tell you? Talk to God. Because I'm not getting involved with that. I'm not going to play God in your life. I'll pray for you. I'll do whatever I can. But David here goes straight to God and he says, Against you I have sinned. He can't hide it anymore. He says, It's always before me. And so confession for him was not just some religious act that's devoid of any heartfelt kind of motive. 
But for him and for us, confession is calling out and saying and agreeing with God that yes, Lord, it's sin, and from my heart I recognize that. Now, it may be necessary for you to confess your sin to someone else. You say, well, I talked to God about it, I'm forgiven. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe you weren't the only person involved. Maybe what you said to the people in your family or the people that you work with or the folks that you're around, maybe they are the ones who also need to grant you forgiveness. Now, ultimately, they can't change your standing before the Lord, but maybe to restore that relationship, you need to go to them and say, I was wrong. And I confess it. And I don't confess it as, look, well, you said this, so I said this back, and you know how that goes, and I'm sorry if you were offended. That's not a confession. A confession is that no matter what you say, what you do, I am responsible for my actions, and what I did or what I said was sinful. And I don't care if you agree or disagree that it was sinful. I believe that based upon God's Word, I shouldn't have done it. It was sinful, and so I need your forgiveness. And you stop there. A true confession does not rationalize the sin. Well, I was under a lot of stress. That's what I do when I'm under a lot of stress. Everybody knows that's just how I am. When I get stressed out, it's what I do. Well, they're just way too sensitive. You know, I, I listen, I really didn't mean anything by it. They just, they're just way too sensitive. They need to grow up a little bit, get a little tougher. And then they can handle me. Or I just couldn't help myself. I mean, it just, it was, I was overwhelmed. The temptation was too great, or they just set themselves up for it. I just couldn't help myself. Or the devil made me do it. That old devil. Oh, he was just sitting there on my shoulder whispering to me. Devil made me do it. Or it really wasn't a big deal. I mean, it really, it just was kind of small. I mean, nobody, it's not going to have any real effect down the road. Or it only happened once. What's the big deal about that? Or if they hadn't done what they did, I would have never done what I did. I love that in my own children. I see that all the time. Maybe if you're a parent, you see that. What did you do? Well, she. Well, he. No, 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 no. That's not the question. (laughs) What did you do? And I believe that's the question God is asking us today. So when great men sin, it will happen. They own it, so there's no dodging it. They confess it. There's no rationalizing. And then finally, they turn from it. Psalm chapter 51 ends with David asking for several things from the Lord and committing to do some things. Look what he says here. Verse 6, Surely, talking to God, you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me. So he asks for cleansing with hyssop. Now, a hyssop branch was used ceremonially to declare that someone had been cleansed from leprosy. So that's what David is talking about. I've got this leprosy. I've got this disease of sin all over me. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Do you see him turning from his sin and turning back to God and saying, Lord, I want you to fill me up. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. You see what sin does? It crushes you over time. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, he says. Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, I'm struggling. Lord, this sin is crushing me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. David has lost the joy of even serving the Lord because of his sin. And give me a willing spirit. Then, he says... Here's his commitment. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will turn to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your repentance. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. So he's saying, Lord, you don't want me to just go through the motions. 
You don't want me to just show up for church. You don't want me just to pray a prayer. Lord, that's what I would do, but that's not what you want. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is what? A broken spirit. Repentance. Turning from it. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure. Then he turns his focus outward to those who also need God's grace and forgiveness. Cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here's what he does. He asks for his own personal cleansing. Lord, I've sinned. And I need you, and I'm turning from it. I want you to cleanse me. I want renewed joy. I need a heart of wisdom. Lord, I want your favor in my life once again. I'm committing to live differently. Lord, I'm going to stand in the gap also for those who need you. I've been down the road of what sin is like, and I know and I understand, and maybe I can help folks. Ultimately, what David does is set a new pattern. This is totally different. He's not rationalizing. He's not making excuses. He's not dodging. He says, I am turning from it, and here's a new pattern in my life. So maybe for you today, as you leave here, and you say, I want to be a great man. I want to be a great woman. I want to be a great follower of Christ. Part of that, at the very core of what it is to be a believer, to be a great man, to be a great woman, is repentance. So maybe you'd say, I'm going to lay down a new pattern and turn from all that. So no more giving myself opportunity for that kind of sin anymore. No more hiding it. No more indulging it. I'm going to set a new pattern so that repentance can take place. If you go back very quickly, and I will close with this last little part from 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to show you God's response. I want to show you the promise of Scripture here and God's response to David's confession. I show you Psalm 51 because it fills out and it colors what he says when I have sinned against the Lord in 2 Samuel 12. And then look, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, the second part. Then Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the Son born to you, will die. Then Nathan went home. God's response to your repentance is grace and forgiveness in spite of the consequences. Some here today would say, well, I guess if I just confess it, I won't dodge it anymore. I guess if I, if I just turn from it, then everything's all right. Don't be stupid. You may still deal with consequences. But that does not negate or remove the promise of God's grace and His forgiveness to wipe the slate clean and to help you deal with the consequences. There are consequences to sin. And even when we receive the forgiveness of God, those consequences don't necessarily go away. You know that. But it's God's grace that can forgive us, and it's God's grace that can enable us now to deal with the consequences and to set a new pattern. That's God's promise for you, based upon the truth of Jesus Christ. You can be made new this morning. You can be made new for the very first time through repenting and turning from sin and admitting for the first time to Jesus Christ that I need you, and without you I am bound for hell for all eternity. 
And you can be made new, walking out of here different to say, Lord, those sins in my life, I want to give them to you. I want your grace for forgiveness and your grace to enable me to deal with the consequences. That's God's promise to you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider the truth of Scripture today, I pray that you would call, in particular, the men that are here this morning to repentance. I pray, Lord, that for those whose lives are messed up, whose marriages are failing, whose children are running from them, Lord, whose relationships at work and in the community are struggling, whatever it may be, And I pray that if there is any sin in our lives that is added to that, Lord, that You would reveal it to us this morning. That You would call us to repentance. That You would grant us Your grace and Your forgiveness once again. And make us new and different. Lord, for those who have never, not truly anyway, repented in their heart of their sin, and turn to You for salvation. Lord, I pray today You'd call them to repentance for the very first time. And today would be the day they would humble, humble themselves before You. Call out for Your grace and Your mercy and be made new. Lord, for those that may be the the ladies here today that say this maybe is not for me, I pray, Lord, that You would help them to reinforce with the men in their lives, their husbands, their sons, their nephews, their co-workers, their fathers, their grandfathers. I pray that You would help them to reinforce that great men are repentant men. and Lord, may they be forgiving and gracious just like You. Lord, raise up great men. For those who are over in worship kid style, those young men, to all the way over here, those who are older, Make us great men, great women who love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.